just working alongside one of New Zealand's great philanthropic thinkers had a profound effect on me and I think has affected every other decision I've made in my career for the rest of my life. Purposely Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. A really warm welcome to Purposely with Jenny Gill, considered the doyen of philanthropy in New Zealand. The following words are used to describe her. Longer serving, most widely recognized, a pioneer, a pioneer of what was a relatively new industry when she joined it. She led New Zealand's largest charitable foundation, Foundation North, for a decade. She now works as an advisor, is on the boards of the Prince's Trust, Maz and Vodafone Foundations. We explore her career journey and how she became a philanthropist. That term is a term that she uses to describe professionals who help guide and advise generous people and philanthropists. People like her first boss, Roy McKenzie, one of the richest, most generous people in New Zealand history. Enjoy the episode. And if you're on Apple Podcasts or any other platform, please hit follow. It really helps me to get the message out there. Enjoy. Jenny Gill, welcome to the Purposely Podcast. Thank you, and kia ora. Kia ora. You've been involved in the philanthropy sector for four decades. You're the sort of, I'd say you're the go-to person for anyone considering working in philanthropy, becoming a philanthropist, or even starting a charitable foundation. Where did it all start for you when, I'm assuming, I'm guessing, you didn't grow up wanting to be involved in the sector? No, no, I didn't. But I met Sir Roy McKenzie in the early 80s and had an extraordinary um, job interview where I went to meet the person who at the time was New Zealand's leading philanthropist and I'd been an applicant to his trust and it had all seemed terribly kind of obtuse and arcane and no matter what you asked for, you got half of what you asked for. But he was looking to set up a personal foundation and someone recommended me and I went in and met him in his office in Wellington in the James Cook Arcade and came out with a job offer with no job description, no discussion about salary and an agreement that I would start work the next day. Wow. Went to his office the next day and um, he handed me a blank pad of paper, a pencil, a copy of the trustee, a cheque for a million dollars and said, okay, let's go. And for 10 years I worked alongside him on his personal foundation, which was called the Roy McKenzie Foundation, which was a spend down not quite the same size as the next foundation, but, you know, a significant spend down over a decade. And then we worked in parallel with the J.R. McKenzie Trust, which was the trust that his father had set up in 1940. And just working alongside one of New Zealand's great philanthropic thinkers had a profound effect on me and I think has affected every other decision I've made in my career for the rest of my life. Mm. And growing up, was there any part of your childhood interaction with parents that would sort of dictate that you'd be in this sector or involved in this like growing up was your household particularly charitable or focused on the issues I think so I mean both of my parents were children of the depression so they were both born in the 1920s were young people during the depression and then of course my dad like everybody else who was born in the 1950s their dads had been in world war Two. And they had a very strong sense, first of all, of not wanting themselves to, not wanting their family, I guess, to live what through what they had lived through in the Depression, but also understanding that you had to also think about others. So they were always strong supporters of organisations like Corso and the Red Cross, and my father had a particular affinity for the Salvation Army. So I guess I grew up in a family where it was understood that you had to look after yourself but that also you you had a responsibility to think about others. In that sort of household with that backdrop and that sort of focus on scarcity and abundance, I picked that up with another guest recently on Purposely, dictating your approach to money or how you consider money. Was that? Do you remember that being talked about in the household? Like money was something to be ready? My father's father, so my grandfather had died as a result of World War One, and he grew up with his mother on a on a widow's benefit. When she died, she had eight hundred dollars in the bank and had said in her will that she wanted each of her grandchildren to have a thousand dollars. So my father had to give each of us a thousand dollars and you know meet the cost of her funeral. So I think he grew up in a family where he was loved, 
and where um, she valued education very highly, but understanding that the first thing, you know, that you had to do was, was look after yourself, but after that you had responsibility for others. So my parents weren't enormously wealthy, but I think they were generous, like many New Zealanders of their generation. And in terms of you know growing up, what you want to be when you're when you're older, do you remember mm-hmm. having those those thoughts and what that might be? Well, I think I think the interesting thing for for women born in the 1950s is there wasn't a lot of talk about what girls' careers might be. And I remember my mother went off when I was about to start school in the third form at Onslow College in Wellington, and she took my form to report. And the careers advisor looked at it and said, um, oh, I see she's good at cooking. Maybe she should do home craft. And my mother, who was the first person in her family go to, to go to university, as was my father, said to the careers of father, well, her father and I thought she should do Latin. So, you know, they put me in the Latin class. And we had teachers who just assumed that we would go to university. And so I guess I went to university. I absolutely loved it. And at that point, I wanted to be a social worker and went into the not-for-profit sector and overseas aid. So there's a kind of a logical career path, I think, in terms of that focus on how can I take what I know and perhaps ease the paths of others. I didn't become a social worker, but I really, really enjoyed working in the not-for-profit sector and then for Corso and overseas aid. In terms of the limitations put on our girls and then women, you had a different example being set at home or your parents had different expectations. Did you always have a sense that you were going to be independent, have a career, break out of that that mould of limitations around being a girl, being a woman in New Zealand at that time? I think so, and I think that was partly because of my mother, who was the first person in her family to go to university, and she had a career. She was a teacher, and she actually went back into secondary school teaching when my youngest sibling, my brother, turned five, which was quite unusual in um, the early 60s. So I guess there was that, there was that modelling happening among, among my mother and her friends and, of course, amongst our teachers that we had at high school. And university? And then, of course, at university. I was at, I was at university when the women's liberation movement had its first meeting when Jumaine Greer came to New Zealand and got arrested for swearing and we all went outside the court and protested. So I was at university in the heady days of the 70s, which was absolutely wonderful because it just completely opened up the world. And our lecturers were very much part of, you know, the the protest movements that the students were part of. So it was an extraordinary time to be at university in, in New Zealand. Do you remember being angry or do you remember being kind of excited about the possibility of what could change? I think we were really excited and we did things like a group of us went along with the, we were members of the Māori Club at Victoria University and we went going house to house collecting signatures for the Māori language petition. We were, you know, protesting against the Vietnam War. I think we were very a very optimistic generation, which feels a bit different from my own children. I think we had a sense of optimism and that we could make a difference. In terms of your, like, growing up then and, and kind of reflecting back to what it was like to be a woman, like, any examples of, like, that you almost could relate to now that you, you know? I remember I was working for Sir Roy McKenzie and I went down to the Westpac Bank on Lampton Quay and they refused to give me a credit card because my husband had to countersign my application for a credit card. That was in about 1985 you know completely outrageous and I was outraged yeah you had that kind of thing all the time when I was at teachers college there was an allowance for married students and when I went to apply for it because my husband at that stage was still at university I mean the woman behind the um behind the you know the clerical receptionist kind of person said to me oh no no it's your husband's job to support you you're not eligible to apply for that allowance you remember thinking i'm going to change this yeah, again yeah. outrage outrage <laughs> yeah look yeah a lot of young kiwis where a lot of our culture especially at that time i was imported from overseas and we had you know a small island at the bottom of the world did you sort of get enticed by the bright lights of of overseas or was that just not an option for you um only briefly, because I was working in overseas aid, when we, when my husband and I went away, 
we actually went away for less than a year and um, spent most of our time in Asia. And when we weren't trekking in the Himalayas, we were visiting aid projects in India um, and Sri Lanka and Nepal. So we had a slightly different kind of OE experience from, you know, many of our many of our contemporaries. And so you head into this career in philanthropy. Like, how vividly do you remember that? that conversation like do you do you remember that job offer and that that meeting quite vividly and go um this is, this is a hell of an opportunity do you have a sense of how important that was absolutely yeah I mean because I'd worked in the not-for-profit sector for quite a few years I could I could see how the not-for-profit sector was you know was struggling with funds and you know personally I'd applied to philanthropic trusts and it was very very unclear about sort of where philanthropy came from. And in fact, I kind of likened it to the cargo cults that we'd studied in anthropology, you know, that, that you, you would send this application off and sometime between sort of six weeks and six months later, a check might arrive in the mail. So I guess when I went in and started working with Saroy, he had a clear strategic purpose and I worked very closely with the organisations that we were to fund. So I was able, because we, we were a very tight team, him and I and a small group of handpicked trustees, and we were able to work closely with a relatively small number of applicants um, and develop quite strong relationships and quite long partnerships. And you'd had an experience like you talked about with, you know, you'd seen firsthand what people had faced sort of in overseas contexts and, and also locally, but this idea that you connect people with money and generosity with the people who need it and it's uh it's a bit more of an empowered relationship was that the thread of the thread of that starting to come through at that point yeah yeah and you know Sir Roy McKenzie absolutely you know was just an exemplar of that if he if he understood the cause then he made sure that he supported it and I think for for me working alongside him that was you know that was very empowering and I think the challenge always for philanthropy is that there are always going to be more applicants or more causes than you can fund. So you have to find a way, first of all, I think, of having, no matter what the purpose of your of your philanthropic trust or foundation is, having a clear strategy, having a clear direction, and then identifying those groups who you will work with. And also increasingly now, and that's a big change, I think, from when I started in philanthropy, is talking right from the beginning about impact and measurement and what success will look like and how you will measure it. Yeah, really, and I want to un- unpack your views on that. So I guess this is the emergence of people. So you've got the philanthropists on one side of the money and then you've got the people who need the, the support, Or, but you've also got this other breed of person which has become yourself, which is the sort of professional philanthropy person. Do you have a sense that was happening globally? Did you go and s- sort of stretch out other... Yeah, other people who are doing something similar, or did you feel like you're on your own on this? Like, well, the joy of working for Sir Roy McKenzie is he absolutely understood the value of sabbaticals. So he packed me off to Australia very early in the time I was working with him, because he was he he had heard about the International Associations of Philanthropy, and he wanted to set up what is now called Philanthropy New Zealand. At the time, we called it the New Zealand Association of Philanthropic Trusts. So he sent me to Australia on a little study tour to meet the Australian Association of Philanthropic Trusts and to meet people like the Meyer Foundation and the Reichstein Foundation in Melbourne. And so I met other professionals working in philanthropy because at that time there was nobody else. In, when I first worked for Saroy, there was nobody else in New Zealand working full-time in philanthropy. Philanthropic trusts tend to be run by retired company accountants or company secretaries as a kind of a, you know, a sinecure when they stepped down from the company. And so I met these extraordinary people running trust and foundations in, in Melbourne. And, and one of their gifts to me was was the title of philanthropocrat, which I have embraced wholeheartedly because I do think it's really important when you work in philanthropy that you acknowledge that you're not the philanthropist. You know, this is not your own personal or family wealth that you are dealing with. You are you are working on behalf of the donor or the donee family. You are not the philanthropist. You are the philanthropocrat. But it also gives you a bit of a neutrality in the in the relationship, which I think also helps because quite often you need to say to an applicant organisation, I'm sorry, the trustees have decided that they're not able to support your project. So you act as this kind of bridge between the applicant and the philanthropic donor or the philanthropic 
trust. Mm. I found enormous use in that. And then a few years later, I was enormously privileged. So Roy sent me to Britain and America and I met a number of people at the Council of Foundations in the States and some very, very interesting philanthropic trusts doing doing really, really interesting work. And I was able to bring that back and share it around the board table, which made at the time, I think, the philanthropy that the McKenzie family were doing the most innovative in New Zealand. Yeah, I bet. And, and how suited did you feel to the role when you started to meet those other philanthropists? When Did you feel, because there is a uniqueness to that role, eh? like, you know, you're being positive, you're being enthusiastic when someone's walking towards you with a cause, at the same time, you're trying to not let your own biases, trying to, uh, d- did you develop a, was there a, a, a Jenny philanthropy cross created around you or did it? Uh, I think I think you get a very discerning eye very quickly. But what I think is important is that the foundation that you're working for has a clear purpose and criteria so one of the criteria that we developed in the Roy McKenzie Foundation very early on is that we wouldn't be, for example, supporting projects that the board believed were the responsibility of either local or central government. So there are a whole lot of projects that people would want to pitch across our table, which might be, say, building a new ward at a hospital or school halls or things like that. And, and we were able to say, we would not consider those kind of proposals. So I think it's important that as a philanthropic trust or foundation that you're really clear with, with the public, with the community, what you're looking to support so that you don't waste anybody's time. You don't waste an applicant's time and you don't waste, you know, your own time or the time of your board on proposals that aren't, you know, that aren't going to fly. And then I think you also, you know, you develop a good eye for looking at people's financials, for looking at their board, for looking at their proposals. And over time, I think you get a sense of what's what's likely to fly, what's likely to, to be successful, what's likely to have long-term sustainability. And sometimes ideas come and they are just at the right time and the timing is right. So, for example, you know, the women's refuge movement got their very first funding from Sir Roy McKenzie and I think they went to see him. It was prior to my going to work for him. But they'd heard that there was a philanthropist who was interested in these issues. They went to see him. He gave them their first funding. Then there was, a, there was the government of the day was really interested in the issue. And, you know, the movement got its first funding. So sometimes, you know, philanthropy can often be in at the beginning of that, of that wave. You look at the Next Foundation with their work around environment and pest eradication. A lot of the work that the Tyndall Foundation's done, you know, sometimes... You just need that philanthropic intervention, but the idea comes from from the community generally rather than from, you know, the philanthropic entity. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting what you say about criteria and the structure of the, you know, the, the charitable trust of being so important and sort of protecting the individuals or protecting you from, because that sort of old boy network potentially or personal influence you know i imagine you had a, lot, a number of people approach you that thinking oh, i you know i know roy through business i'll have this money in the bag and they, then they hit jenny gill did you, did you learn the hard way though on the on sort of negotiating the politics of that i did i did and one of the things um and i've told this story a few times about sir roy is that i realized very early on is that he was never going to say no to anybody who came to see him And we had offices that were adjacent, and so people would come in to see him, and if he wanted to support them, he made it very clear to them before they left his office that, you know, that that their application was likely to be successful. And and if um, he wasn't happy about it, he'd say to them, you have to see my executive officer, which was my title. (laughs) And he never explicitly said to me, you're the one who's going to say no. So we turned down nine out of ten applications at the Roy McKenzie Foundation. So I got very good at that. And um, that's why, you know, I feel really strongly that you owe it to everybody to make your criteria really, really clear so that people aren't disappointed and people don't put a lot of time and energy into an application which which isn't, you know, even going to get to the board table. You were there a long time and it sounded like a job that you loved. You're getting involved in building a kind of uh, a network of other philanthropists but also um, people who are working in philanthropy as you described I suppose just learning a lot on that journey 
Mm, absolutely. And the other thing, of course, that happened in, in New Zealand. So when I started in philanthropy, there was the, the J.R. McKenzie Trust, which, you know, Sir John McKenzie, the founder of McKenzie's stores, had set up in the 1940s. And then there was the Todd Foundation and Sutherland Help, Self-Help Trust, and then the trusts and estates that were held in the likes of Perpetual Guardian and um, the Public Trust. And then we had the Longy Douglas era reforms and we got the establishment of the 12 community trusts set up from the sale of the trustee savings banks. And then shortly after that, the sale of the energy trusts from the sale of various energy assets. So suddenly, you know, the New Zealand philanthropic sector just blossomed with with these statutory trusts. And then we saw the Tyndall Foundation. So there's been a massive, you could call it an explosion, I think, of philanthropy in the time that I've, you know, that I've been working in the sector. And, you know, there there are now hundreds of people working in philanthropy Mm. in in various forms and a lot of really interesting new philanthropic initiatives. And, yeah, you talked about that developing idea around impact, you know, not just giving money blindly and that you'd have a part to play, maybe partnering with an organisation to be to, to deliver positive impact. Mm. Where did that sort of change in thinking happen? Because prior to that, was I guess that you said it was very arm's length. You might get a cheque after six months. Was that sort of coming from overseas? Do you, do you remember thinking around more other forms of philanthropy? And, or I, just... I, I mean, it, the, the, the thinking was happening overseas, but actually I think there was a small group of us in philanthropy, including some of the people who are trustees around our table, just saying, we need to know what the impact of this is. Because when Roy was funding strategic interventions, he really wanted to make a difference. And so you start talking about, well, you know, how will we know if we've made a difference? And I think, you know, for a long time, there weren't a lot of people in New Zealand with expertise in evaluation. There wasn't, you know, a strong culture in New Zealand of data collection you know, in the government, in the private sector, in the not-for-profit sector. So, you know, I think I think there was a there was a bit of a change in New Zealand around that. And then you gradually get, you know, the growth of smaller and larger private and not-for-profit enterprises kind of arising, you know, to meet that need. So at Foundation North we set up the Centre for Social Impact, which at the time was really, really, really innovative in New Zealand, whereas now there are probably dozens of companies of various sizes offering these services to not-for-profits and to philanthropists. But increasingly, when you start to think about the issues that we face as a country, you need government at both the central and local government to engage. So if you think of, you know, work around restoring landscapes or the health of the Hauraki Gulf, in the end, you need data that you can go to a council or the Ministry for the Environment and say, if we do this, we can demonstrate that you will get these outcomes. Yeah, and and that whole uh, ecosystem um, was all working in the same direction. Yeah. Okay, and, and in terms of so decision to leave the, the J.R. McKenzie Trust, so you, you were there 16 years left in 2000 and just early 2000s, 2001. What was the decision about to leave? I'd been... The Roy McKenzie Foundation was a spend down. So I was there for nearly 10 years and I'd been involved in the Joe McKenzie Trust in addition to that. And I'd taken on a new job. I had, you know, things have a time. But I've stayed very, very close to the Joe McKenzie Trust and to the McKenzie family. So I, I pulled off the board. I think I was the chair of Philanthropy New Zealand at the time. It was long enough, but I still have a very, very close association with the Mackenzie Fano and have a lot of respect for them and for their family's ongoing involvement in philanthropy. I've been working with the grandchildren, so Roy Mackenzie's great-grandchildren, talking with them about philanthropy, which is lovely work. I really enjoy it. Yeah, I bet. And so you, did you, you went off to um, join a, a community foundation, is that right? Well, I, um, I ran the Fulbright program between New Zealand and the States for 10 years and then moved up here to Auckland and headed up Foundation North, which is the largest of the trusts set up from the sale of the trustee savings banks in the late uh, 1980s. So they have a grants program. When I was there, it was around 50 million, and it's even larger than that now. So they're a very, very significant philanthropic force in New Zealand, but in particular in Auckland and Northland. And how was the move to, to the north? Difficult? 
Oh, no. I mean, my family comes from here and not difficult at all. I'm sitting here looking out at a Bahutakawa tree in full flower. <laughs> Got more DNA. <laughs> and did that feel like a good next challenge for you? It did. It did. Absolutely. And simply because of the scale of Foundation North, you know, the challenge, you could, I knew when I went there that you could make a significant difference with a putier of that size. Yeah, because it's New Zealand's biggest, I think, isn't it? One point. It's the second largest in Australasia. Yeah, well over a billion dollars. Well over. Yeah, well over. <laughs> an, endow- mm. an endowment. So, yeah, tell us about what that was like. What What did you find when you when you got there? Um, I found an organisation with a group of trustees who were looking for a change of direction. And so we did a strategic planning meeting within three weeks of my starting the job. And it was just the most wonderful ride because we had a group of really innovative, open-minded trustees who knew that this fund could have so much more impact if it was managed in a different way from the way it had been managed in the past. And we set about with some really clear strategic targets, some really focused investments, and over time, you know, built up a really, really competent staff team to work on that, engaged with Māori, engaged with Pacifica, I guess stepped out sort of from behind the front door into direct community engagement. And, you know, the, the trust has, the foundation has continued on that journey since I retired from there in, in 2019. And one of the unique aspects of a community trust is that they're, governance direction or, or trustees come from a selection made by the, the government. So, you know, the thinking being if there's a, a national or Tory government in, in play, they might dominate the board, but that's the selection process, isn't it? It's, it's by it, the... It is. Mm. It's what, you know, it's clearly in the legislation. I mean, the energy trusts have elected trustees, you know, and you could debate at length the merits of politically appointed or elected trustees. I mean, my experience was that because when there is a change of government, trustees see out their terms. So in fact, because trustees have three-year terms, it takes up to three years after a change of government before you get a complete change of trustees. And if you get intelligent people of goodwill round the table, then the challenge for the chair and for the senior staff is to take the trustees on the journey, to take them on the journey to understand why it is that you have the strategic focus, why it is that you're making those investments. And, you know, most people who are appointed to the boards of the community trusts across the country are appointed because they want the community that they live in to have better outcomes. Yeah. And do they, you know, they often will come representing their corner of society and they'll you know people go well you've got to, that role as trustee for foundation north be really good if you get us get some funding for us that sort of pressure that goes back to what you said at the start of the conversation around really good criteria really good um strong themes yep. like that was important and making just i mean when people come in as new trustees just getting them to understand that it is not their role as trustees to be bringing applications to the table it's their role as trustees to develop policy and criteria. And as long as that's understood when people first come in, then it hasn't, that hasn't been a problem. And as CEO, so you've got, it's a big job, big job in that your, you know, big responsibility around, you know, over, well over a billion dollars endowment. So you've got to protect, you've got to grow that. You've also got to be connected to the community, the issues, trying to, you know, make a positive impact on. Which bit of it did you sort seek help with did, when you took on that role? Did you does the investment part of it the bit that you went and sought an heir of someone else? Oh well, the I mean, interestingly, because I'd worked with Roy McKenzie, Rangatira is the you know the investment vehicle for the McKenzie family. So, I mean, we I'd spent a lot of time sitting around the table with with the Rangatira team talking about investment. And um, when I moved to Foundation North or ASB Community Trust, as it was then, there was already a system in place of an investment committee with a small in-house investment um, team, one person at that stage, and external advisors. So all of the community trusts contract out the investment advice on the open market, and that advice is, you know, brought to the investment committee. And I think most of the community trusts over the past decade have probably strengthened their internal capacity. So you get, what would you call it, sort of robust discussion 
between the staff and the advisors and then between the advisors and the investment committee. None of the community trusts in New Zealand would have sufficient scale to warrant bringing the investment in-house. And I think that would be quite a risky thing to do. Yeah. And what are sort of the main changes that you, so you were, you know, at Foundation North for 16 years. So what were the biggest changes that you saw during the, your sure. you know, tenure as, as CEO? Well, I think on the investment side, we absolutely were one of the leaders around what is now such a common dialogue around tables, but wasn't in 2004, around what was then called ethical investment, around sustainability. You know, we signed up to the UN PRI very, very early absolutely understood that we needed to look at the impact of our investment portfolio alongside our grants portfolio. But right from the very beginning with our strategy, we understood that we needed to work with and alongside Māori. The chair of the trust when I first took it on was Kevin Prime, who's a leader from Natihine in the north. And once he'd finished his chair, Kevin accepted the position as of Kaumatua and is still Kaumatua to Foundation North. And so I think one of the biggest parts of the journey was actually walking alongside Māori and understanding that many of the issues that we faced in Auckland and Northland were only going to be resolved by walking with people, not delivering to Māori and to Pacifica. So just having conversations with the community in a really, really different way. What you're describing is so more strategic in the sense that you've you've got a limited amount to give away. So you look into the community and you say, this is where the most need is. We need to focus on that. And then working in partnership, not trying to decide what the intervention should be for that community or those communities. Mm-hmm. That was a sort of, because that this stuff is not necessarily how, you know, charitable trusts were operated over the last no. decade. So this is this is all relatively new way of operating like this. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I'll give you an example. So we um, started what we ended up calling our Māori and Pacifica Educational Initiative and we put aside $10 million and we had basically saw the data around Māori and Pacifica children and young people's educational achievement or lack thereof in Auckland and Northland. So set aside a dedicated fund of $10 million and called for applications from the community looking for ideas around how you might raise the educational achievement of young people in our community. And we had 350 expressions of interest and over, well, hang on, back the truck up. Before we even went out to the community, we called together a group of senior Māori and Pacifica thinkers in education nationally and locally and we spent nearly a year talking with them in various forums about what the issues were about what kind of approaches there might be and at the end of that time we decided to call for applications and we called for a 500 word initial proposal I think and we got 350 we whittled those 350 down to under 30 and we ended up funding fewer than 10 but the ones that we funded we committed to a five-year funding journey and to evaluation. So it was, a, you know, from that 350 finally down to 10 and then walk alongside with them. And I remember we called the 10 applicant groups together and brought them into the office in Ponsonby. And I stood up and after they'd been welcomed, I said, you've all got funding you're not in competition with one another. And I literally saw people's shoulders drop and they relaxed and they turned to their neighbours and they smiled because often the traditional philanthropic model sets applicants up in competition with one another. And what we wanted to do was work with this group of successful applicants as a cohort, if you like, and to see what actually what cross-pollination there could be between them and what support there could be between them and what kind of collective learning there could be out of that cohort. Yeah. In terms of the community trust, and because, you, you know, you're running the largest one, was there any sort of tension between the original trustees and being more strategic? So the, the sense that you go, we're not going to try and service 
a broad brush, you know, community sport, all sorts of different issues. Was it was there any sort of tension between the original trust deed and them being way more strategic and working with certain groups and, and excluding others? Well, I think, you know, it's always a journey and it was a journey and there was robust conversation. And I think probably in the community there was a bit of concern from some people who traditionally had quite large grants that, that they weren't going to get those. But, I mean, the whole field of sport was really interesting because what the trustees recognised really early on is that participating in community is really important and sport is an important part of people's, particularly young people's, ability to, to participate in community. So, in fact, we put a lens on the sport funding, which is a move away from elite sport to more community-led sport. And, you know, that went down very well. And making these decisions, not always the most popular, I imagine, because it goes a real sense that Foundation North are really important to lots of organisations. They, they help a lot of organisations with the costs that other people won't fund. So there's back office costs, the, you know, keeping the lights on, if you like. Yep. But, you know, over the years, did you, in that role, did you, did you ever come under fire? Did you, you know, get a sense from people that you weren't? the most popular. <laughs> I suppose because I'd worked for Roy McKenzie and turned down eight or nine out of ten applicants, I guess you develop a bit of a thick skin and if you feel if you feel confident in your strategy, if you have confidence in your criteria and you know you've got the backing of your trustees, then you know, you can keep going and you can keep that dialogue. And you just have to say to people, you know, we can't fund everything we're asked to fund. You know, it's exactly the same issue that government faces every day. I mean, most people in the community sector, I have to say, are very aware of it because they're, you know, they're on the other end. They're the ones filling out the application forms and getting letters of decline. So they're aware of it. You know, it's not a surprise to people in the community sector that a certain philanthropic trust isn't able to, you know, support them to the level they'd like to be supported. I think the challenge is to scale up things that work, and I think that's what we haven't addressed in New Zealand. So you get approaches to some of our deeply entrenched social issues and they can't be funded by philanthropy indefinitely. And I think the, probably the biggest frustration that both we and our community partners felt was an inability to engage with government in a meaningful way about how you scale up what works. Yeah, and and seeing projects not necessarily doing what you hope they would do in the long run, or they they would do some good locally, but they could do a lot more good on a bigger scale. Yeah, but also being prepared, and I know you talk with Bill Commode from the Next Foundation about this in your podcast, is being prepared to fund things that might not work and at some point to walk away from them because they didn't. But it's about your risk profile. You know, if you if you manage a billion-dollar portfolio, you understand that you have a risk profile. And I think, you know, you think of your grants portfolio in the same way. You have a risk profile. And so Stephen Tyndall said to me once that if, if some of the projects that you funded didn't fail, you probably weren't being innovative enough. You probably weren't taking enough risk. Yeah. Which is not to say you want your funds to be misused. But sometimes people have really good ideas and for various reasons they don't work. I guess there's some bravery needed there, right? So you, I'm thinking you as a, you're, you're a leader, you've got this this board of, of impressive, high-standing, some with real profile. You put forward a project, they agree it, and it doesn't necessarily work out. But being brave around, like, where, what was your leadership? Did your leadership style evolve or, or had it, was it pretty set? Like, what was your approach? Like, I mean, it, it, it evolved. But, you know, I, as I said at the beginning, I think working alongside Roy McKenzie and seeing him being prepared to take a punt on people was hugely influential. And I see that also in, in Sir Stephen Tyndall and the work of the Tyndall Foundation. Often you're taking a punt on the people that you've met who are working to address that issue. And I also think that, you you know, you don't place your biggest bet early. So one of the practices that we've involved in the Maz Foundation is, you know, a relatively small grant initially, and if that goes well, then talking to an organisation about a much larger investment over a number of years. So you take a risk, but just like with your investment portfolio, you don't put everything into Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, especially right now, yeah. Especially right now. <laughs> yeah. 
And this is probably a good time to explore, you know, like there's a sort of a lot of theories around the ideal type of philanthropy and, you know, like some people think it should be terribly strategic, others more trust-based philanthropy. What's Jenny Gill's thesis around, how would you describe good philanthropy? I think there's a place for a variety of models. I think there's a new generation of philanthropists who are completely in the strategic space and who are looking to achieve, you know, major change. And, you know, I really admire that. I think that there's a real, there's got to be trust between the philanthropic funder and the organisation. So that relationship-based, trust-based philanthropy is very much the model that we're pursuing at the Mayors Foundation. I mean, philanthropy cannot backfill government, and I think most philanthropic trusts are now moving away from that, which some providers find really difficult because, you know, you might be, you know, running a food bank in a town in Northland, and actually all you want to do is make sure you've got enough food on the shelves of the pantry for your client group. But increasingly, philanthropists would probably be saying they want to talk with the community about how do you reduce people's dependence on food banks. But the provider who's offering food to that family so the children can be fed today still want to be able to access sufficient resources to keep the doors of the food bank open. So that's the kind of the dilemma, I think. And I think there are different, you know, there are different models that suit different governance models. Yeah, because you've got a number of board roles. And I guess the the crucial bit is where's the money coming from? what are the expectations from where it's coming from. Yeah. And that, that's all crucial. So people clearly, you know, and I'm, I'm not surprised, but they, they you know, sort you to come onto their boards and I guess you size it up depending on where the money's coming from. Absolutely. There would be, yeah, there would be some things that I wouldn't even consider. Absolutely. Yeah. It's got to be, you know, it's got to be clean money, if you like. Absolutely. And in terms of that corporate relationship, um, so you're involved, involved in the Vodafone Foundation and, and on the business side, things can evolve, change, there could be buyouts. Is that interesting because it's a separate entity, the Vodafone Foundation, from its parent, isn't it? Like it, yep. But it derives its money from a really fascinating space, corporate foundations. Have you enjoyed working in that space? I have. Mm. And, and, you know, there are a number of new corporate, you know, there are probably more new corporate foundations set up in New Zealand in the last two years than in the last 20. So it's, you know, it's a really, really interesting space. I think the important thing is that the, that the foundation has to be at arm's length from the corporate because it's not about corporate profiling and comms and PR. But obviously there has to be an alignment. So then working with whoever, I mean, in the Vod- in the case of the Vodafone Foundation, the majority of the board members are members of the Vodafone senior management team, but they are extraordinarily respectful of the three of us who are not Vodafone staff members. In the MAS Foundation, you know, the arm, the, the arm is even longer and there is one MAS board member on the Mass Foundation, and the rest of us are completely independent. So it is a really, really interesting model, but that independence is really important. The independent legal entity and then the independence of the board is really important. Really interesting that there's more charitable foundations being set up by corporates. I'd love to get your thoughts on that. And then, you know, do you get approaches to say, we're about to, we're thinking of setting one up. How should we approach it? Yes, I do. I've had a couple, yep. And it's really yeah, interesting. Why do you think they are? Different, different, you know, different corporates have a different view and some opt for quite safe philanthropy and that's fine. It's not doing any harm and others are more innovative. How do you approach the advice giving in those situations? Do you just do a lot of listening first off? Yeah, yeah. And it depends, you know, sometimes quite a lot of work's already been done and you're almost more like a critical friend and sometimes you can sort of be there right from the beginning. I mean, for many corporates... Philanthropy is a whole new journey and they've got a bit of a bit of learning to do and they you know, you have to have some, some conversations about what it is that philanthropy does that's not, you know, comms and PR and also what's what the reality of life for many people in many New Zealand communities is. Because many people who've had very successful corporate careers, depending on where they grew up, may not have had a lot of contact with some of the highest need communities they'd quite like their foundation to serve yeah and i think 
what I've noticed is um, maybe sort of more 90s and, and early 2000s of New Zealand, a lot of it felt like it was attached to marketing objectives so mm. that, you know, they would the corporate would be asking more from you than they would from some yep. of their paid partnerships. But I think the, you know, the ray of hope or is around B Corps coming through and, you know, you've got, you know, organizations like a, one of my guests recently, Brian West and Atik making a commitment, you know, a real hard commitment around what they're going to give away even before they're thinking about profit, but, mm. but really building it into the DNA, that purpose and, of beyond just shareholder value and money being imperative. So it's that that seems like it's very hopeful. Mm. There was there was a big fuss about a decade ago of an insurance company who had set up a scholarship and they filmed these successful grantees and then somebody pointed out they were spending more on the filming and the places of placing of these films on television than the value of the scholarship. And, you know, people were naturally, you know, uncomfortable and not happy with that. So there are lessons for corporates, I think, in, in how to do this and how to do it well. I also think on the volunteering side, eh? like so, so many corporates will um, put a lot of emphasis on uh, volunteering. But when you're on the non-profit side, the 50 volunteers walking towards you on a Friday afternoon can actually more of a drain on resources than it can be uh, any useful help. And I think, you know, businesses, corporates using their IP, using their skill set to make a difference is, is more of that, the better. Because eh? there are skills sitting in, in those corporates that, you know, many not-for-profits don't have on either their board or their staff and they desperately need. So give them an auditor, you know, give them an accountant, give them someone to do some strategic planning. But it's going to be more than a Friday afternoon. It's probably going to be a commitment over a year. 100%. And just coming towards the end of your Foundation North journey, so decision to leave personal one because actually you wanted to spend more time with family, with friends, doing some of those other things you love in life? Yeah, and I really wanted to do some board work and the job at Foundation North was 10 to 12 hours a day and there wasn't much time for anything else. So, yeah, it was that decision. And I also think, you know, I was in that role for over 15 years and that's long enough to lead an organisation through change to feel that it's it's trucking along quite nicely. But, no, it was it was long enough and I've absolutely loved the board work I've been doing since I left there. Absolutely loved it. In that initial phase of, of you know, stepping down, with any regrets? Because I imagine you were well sought of after person. <laughs> You're on everyone's let's speak to Jenny list. Was there a sudden shift where suddenly 50 people were getting hold of you they normally would have? Did you see people suddenly just, they thought you you thought they were friends, but actually you realised they were just after your access to your charitable foundation? Or? There was a bit of that, yes. That was that's but that's very that's very good for hum, your humility I think but yeah I also got a lot of approaches but also I retired and then New Zealand went into COVID six months later so it was an odd time because basically particularly living in Auckland you know we were confined to home for nearly you know on and off for nearly two years and so it gave me a lot of time to think. And we didn't, you know, many of the things that we thought we would do over that time, you know, we weren't able to do in terms of, you know, we're very enthusiastic trampers and cyclists and a lot of those things were were necessarily postponed. Some of them we fitted in. Yeah, so it was a time for a lot of contemplation, really, which is which was a good thing. Mm. And coming out of that period and, and getting a little bit more back to normal and having had all that time to think, what has it made you determine to do to be what was the result of those that deep thought time um what i have decided is that i'm large i'm really interested in being on boards where an organization is in a period of change or refocusing and probably that i'm not particularly interested in being a consultant i'm not ever going to write another report in my life ever I've written enough meeting papers and board papers, you know, for any one person's lifetime. But I'm really loving the chair and advisory roles that I've got and that I think I want to add value where I can and then I will pull back once, you know, once there's a period of sort of once directions have been set, then I will I will probably pull back and then just decide what other things I want to do. And do you feel quite optimistic about the future? Like it's tough times at the moment, isn't it, economically? huge issues around 
the environment and and yeah, the decay of the environment. But do you feel optimistic about what you see in terms of people coming through business philanthropy? Uh, yes and no. I'm terrified at the thought of climate change. And so I don't have the optimism that I had in the heady days of the 70s about an individual citizen's ability to influence change. I feel I love what's happening in Māoridom and seeing young Māori leaders emerging and some of the really innovative projects that we've, that we've been able to support through philanthropy. But I think I worry for my grandchildren. I worry what kind of world they will live in. I really do. I have five grandchildren and I worry a lot about the legacy of not only my generation but my parents' generation in terms of the world we're going to leave them. Yes, I'm not the optimistic person that I was, which doesn't mean that I don't, it doesn't stop me doing things. And what do you think, what should be the role of charitable foundations in what you, you know, responding to what you just described? Well, I would love to see more philanthropic money going into addressing issues of climate change and environmental degradation in New Zealand. When you look at things like the state of, you know, rivers and oceans, I really, really think the philanthropic sector needs to step up and get much, much more involved in that space because we collectively have contributed to deforestation and the pollution of water and as a community no one else is going to look after the New Zealand environment if we don't and I think that's probably the philanthropic sector needs to take a good hard look at itself because a tiny proportion of philanthropic money in New Zealand goes into the environment sector. Jenny Gill, massive thank you for joining me on Purposely Podcast. Thank you, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do.